then I can't think of a more appropriate response to Psalm 52 than that rendition of come to me that the choir sang just a few moments ago. Thank you so much, choir, for encouraging our hearts in that way and reminding us of this gentle yet passionate pastoral plea from Jesus to rest our hearts and our souls securely and only upon him. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to Psalm 52. As you're turning to Psalm 52, let me say a big thank you to Pastor Laramie and to our brother Frankie for preaching the last few weeks. Uh, a fantastic sermon from Psalm 50 on, on worship and uh, finding the heart of worship being secured in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then last week from Psalm 51, Frankie did such an incredible job in this plea from David and seeking the Lord's forgiveness. And Frankie, I thought you had a number of wonderful quotes, but I can't help but uh, want to mention this one this morning. You noted, quote, I want my double inheritance, but I don't want you, talking about Esau. Many professing Christians are like Esau. They are attracted to the idea of a free ticket to heaven, much the same way that Esau wanted the financial benefits of his birthright, but they don't want the God who provides his ruling over their lives. They love their sin, and they have no desire to turn from it, Sorry, it's not biblical Christianity. Thank you, brother, for faithfully preaching the Word of God. Uh, I was listening to your sermon while we were on a train, and at the beginning, Erica saw me laughing, and she said, what are you laughing at? I said, well, Frankie just started his sermon, and he decided to remind everybody that he was a dermatologist and not a preacher. And I just got tickled at it, because you always do such an incredible job communicating the Word of the Lord. We might make a preacher out of you, Frankie. Psalm 52, Psalm 52. Psalm 52 to Psalm 58 is an interesting section of the Psalms as they are going to recount in large measure this dialogue between the psalmist and God, particularly reflecting upon God's good providential care toward the psalmist under intense pressure. And this psalm is unique in that the psalmist himself, most likely David, is reflecting upon a very interesting period of time, a very specific event in the life of David. And so in many ways, David is inviting us into his inner thoughts of this dialogue between David and God. Let me ask you a question this morning. Think with me for a moment. What is the most difficult experience you've ever had in life? What is the most difficult experience you've ever had in life? Perhaps it was the loss of a child. Perhaps it was the utter betrayal of a spouse. Perhaps it was the loss of that thing most precious in your life. Psalm 52 is a reflection of one of those most difficult periods of time, not only in David's life, but a difficult story in all the texts of Scripture. David was running from Saul. This story is recounted in 1 Samuel chapter 21 through chapter 22. Saul had already been told that the kingship was going to be removed from him, and he was in large measure in rebellion against God. Saul was not wanting to come to grips with the consequences of his own sin. And because of that, he was pursuing David, who had been anointed, been told that he would be king of, of Israel. 
So David is, is fleeing, and he finds himself in the area of, of Nob. And when he shows up in, in Nob, he encounters, if you will, the, the head priest, Ahimelech. But David is somewhat deceptive himself in his communication to Ahimelech. David plots in his mind, in his conversation with Ahimelech, to note that he's on this very urgent, important matter on behalf of the king. As if Saul has somehow quickly sent David on a journey, and it's it's a matter to which David himself cannot even communicate and tell the king. And so David pleads with Ahimelech to find refuge, if you will. He wants food. Not only does he want food, he, he tells Ahimelech that he needs, he needs a sword. He needs something for protection. And so Ahimelech tells him, actually, David, the sword that you slayed Goliath with, we actually have it. And David says, oh, great, I'll take it. So David takes the sword. But the narrative of Scripture reminds us that there's an interesting character who is witness to this exchange between David and Ahimelech. Doeg the Edomite. It's interesting, three times in the recounting of the narrative, the text of Scripture reminds us that Doeg is an Edomite. In other words, Doeg is not part of the people of God. He is an enemy of God. And so the narrative recounts Doeg simply standing, if you will, behind the scene, yet knowing everything taking place in the scene. So the story would transition. Ahimelech provides for David. Of course, David is a mighty man of God, a mighty man in, in, in Saul's kingdom. He's not aware of the division, it would seem, from the, from the narrative of the story. And as it would occur in 1 Samuel chapter 22, uh, King Saul is meeting with a group of people, and he hears this narrative that some of the priests have indeed made provision for David. And wouldn't you know it, Doag is standing near King Saul. And he's ready to pounce, right? You can imagine Doeg, he wants, the, he wants to be prominent in the, in, in, in among the king. He, he knows that he can recount this story and, and maybe rise in, in Saul's kingdom. And so Doeg tells Saul, hey, I know exactly what took place. David showed up in Nob, and there Ahimelech made provision for King David, he gave him bread, and he gave him a sword. So, of course, Saul is perplexed. He can't believe this betrayal. How in the world could the priests betray the king? And so he sends for Ahimelech to come, and he confronts him. He says, what have you done? And Ahimelech is like, Saul, King Saul. I've, I've done what you would require of me. I mean, David's a mighty man. He's a man of God, and, and I made provision for him. Again, Ahimelech does not know the division clearly between Saul and David, and, and um, Do uh, or Ahimelech responding in the way that he did just sets King Saul off in further rage and anger. And so King Saul turns to his men and he says, I want you to kill Ahimelech and every one of the priests of Nob. But the text reminds us that even King's Saul, King Saul's men had hesitancy in carrying out the useless, needless, wicked murder of the priest of Nob. But aha, there stands the mighty 
Doeg. He is ready to pounce at King Saul's command. And not only does Doeg kill all 85 of the priests in the land of Nob, the Bible also tells us that Doeg took the sword and he slayed all of the women and the children in the city of Nob. And this psalm, Psalm 52, is King David's reflection upon this evil that has been perpetrated against the priests and the citizens of Nob. And if you read the end of that story in Psalm 1 Samuel 22, you see David mourn, for he remembers Doeg the Edomite watched the entire narrative unfold and David feels a sense of responsibility for the useless death of innocent priests, women, and children. So here in Psalm 52, David reflects and he reminds us of this eternal truth. Believers, that is those who have trusted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, believers can have confidence that any earthly evil carried out against us, believers can have confidence that any earthly evil carried out against us shall be judged by God. Now notice this text from the very beginning as we dive into this text of Scripture. This text does not teach us that if you place your faith and trust in the person of Christ, that your life will be removed from any difficulty. This text does not tell us that if you will just come to Jesus as the choir so passionately pled with us in that song, if you'll just come to Jesus, everything in your life will be okay. In fact, this psalm reminds us that it's rightly the opposite. That if you do come to Jesus, if you do trust in God, you can rest assured you will indeed face difficulty. And friends, one of the reasons why I love the psalm, the psalms is that we get this range of emotions. And over the course of the next six weeks, these psalms are going to be pleading with you and me that we might rest our hearts now, today, in this eternal truth. For if you wait until your day of trouble comes knocking on your door to trust in God, don't be surprised when you find yourself running from God and not trusting fully, completely, totally in Him. Purpose in your heart today, friend. Purpose in your mind today, believer, that no matter the earthly evil that comes against you, you can have confidence and trust and faith in God. David begins here in verses 1 through 7, and he reminds us that believers may confidently declare Believers may confidently declare God's judgment against the wicked. This is what David does here in verses 1 through 7. As David reflects on this scenario, he is clear to communicate God's judgment against evil. Look what he does here in verses 1 through 4. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Who is this mighty man in this text that is boasting in evil? Is it King Saul? At the end of the day, King Saul is the one that's ultimately responsible for carrying out this, this act of wicked, or is, it, or is it Doeg? I think the text is somewhat clear in recounting to us. This is Doeg. You can imagine, Doeg prides himself in being this mighty man. He, he has the protection of of a defrocked king, even though he doesn't perceive Saul to be defrocked. He still has a protection of, of the king. 
He's a, he's a mighty, strong man. He, you can imagine at the end of this slaying, he, he's probably puffed out his chest and he even thinks he's more mighty and more strong than what he really is because he just slayed single-handedly all of these people. So David's reflecting on this and says, why do you boast of evil? Oh, mighty man, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit, you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour Oh, deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought, re- and sought refuge in his own destruction. See, this psalm reminds us here in verses 1-4 through four that God's love indeed sustains believers when we are faced with this earthly evil that is carried out against us. I ask you at the beginning of this sermon, what is the greatest difficulty you've ever faced in life? I might propose to us this morning that there's not one of us who've experienced what the city of Nob has experienced. Can you imagine being a father there that day? Can you imagine being a priest given the responsibility of communicating the steadfast love of God to a community? Can you imagine seeing the slaying, the murder of innocent women and children, an entire community destroyed? What does David have to say in reflection to this? Does David cry out to the Lord and say, God, surely if you were real, surely God, this is, this is your fault. If you were indeed this loving, kind, all-powerful, mighty God, God, if you had an ounce of care or love or compassion for your people, you would have never allowed this evil to be perpetrated against these innocent people. How could you, God, allow this to happen? No. No, notice David's response. How does David respond with such confidence? Because David knows that no matter what earthly evil is perpetrated against the people of God, we can always have confidence that God will indeed be the one who has the last statement of judgment against all evildoers. Look at David's firm confidence noted at the very beginning as he cries out in in, in a way of mockery toward Doeg. Doeg perceives himself to be mighty, so David says to him, why are you boasting, O mighty man? Do you not know the end of verse, verse one? Do you not know, Doeg, of the incredible, steadfast love of God that endures all day? Evil man, do you think that you can overcome God's covenantal commitment to his people? Evil man, (coughs) do you think that your act of utter defiance against God will go unnoticed? Friend, perhaps you're here today and like Doag, you are a person who stands 
in rebellion against God for your rejection of Jesus Christ as King. No, I'm not saying that like Doeg, you're going around with your sword and you're slaying entire communities of innocent women and children. I'm not even saying that you are one whose, whose tongue is filled with such deceit as what we see here in verses 2, 3, and 4. But I am saying to you today, friend, that if you have never repented of your sins and trusted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are this mighty man to whom the psalmist is speaking. You are that mighty person who has set your life in opposition against God. But I want you to hear the passionate plea of King David by the Holy Spirit through his word today. Don't think that you can ever escape the steadfast love of God. But don't misunderstand God's love. God's love is not the absence of God's judgment. God's judgment is a fulfillment, an outflow of God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love was first communicated to his people in Exodus 34 in that beautiful text of Scripture as we see God reveal himself to Moses in this most beautiful depiction as being one who is full of steadfast love. What is this steadfast love? In Hebrew, it's the hesed of God. It is his covenantal commitment to his people. It is God's promise to his people that we even see communicated in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we hear it in words such as this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We hear it in terms of the Gospel of Matthew at the very beginning and at the very end. Jesus is one who is always with his people. The steadfast love of God is all of the promises of God that have been given to his people with the assurance of God himself that he will do what he has promised. That steadfast love of God, friends, has ultimately been revealed to you and me through the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. For the Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, the height of God's love for humanity has been expressed through the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. Would you this morning, friend, experience God's ever-loving kindness toward you by believing in His Son, Jesus? Otherwise, please hear the rest of this text of Scripture and know that this statement of judgment is for you. It's interesting that David, in this very personal reflection, is boasting in God's judgment against, in this case, the scenario of what happened in, in Nob, against, against Doag the Edomite. It's interesting that David is, is hoping in God's good judgment against against Doag. And we might be prone to think that, well, every time somebody does something against us, we'll just say to them nice words like, your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor. You're, you worker of deceit. I'm, I'm looking forward to laughing at your destruction. Try that the next time somebody wrongs you and let me know how it goes for you. How are we to understand this text? as believers in this way? Is it appropriate for believers to issue these type of warnings to evildoers? And I want to respond with a strong affirmative. There is no gospel apart from an understanding that apart from Christ, we stand under the judgment of God. We are being saved from what? 
If you don't understand, friend, your offense against God, if you don't understand today that apart from Christ, you have offended a holy, righteous, good God, you'll never understand or comprehend the goodness of the gospel. We have no gospel message if we fail to declare God's judgment against sin. It is loving for you and for me to warn sinners of their ultimate eternal destruction. Don't think you will ever win somebody to Christ without fully communicating the truth of the gospel to that person. So how do we ultimately understand what David is doing here? What is our right response? Do we go around and tell everyone that offends us that they are a dirty, wicked scumbag headed for hell? No. But this text does remind us that our right response is to rightly warn sinners of the destruction that lies ahead. And this is what David is doing. He's ultimately warning Doeg the Edomite that if he continues in his rebellion against God, he will face God's judgment. What does Doeg, how does he describe this, this evil, this wickedness of Doeg? Look at verses 2, 3, and 4. He's a liar. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Now, by the way, if I said to you, what is worse? Your neighbor that lied to you or your other neighbor that killed the neighbor next door, what are you going to say? Be careful. Well, I do want to propose to you this. You'd much rather live next door to a neighbor that lies to you than the neighbor that murders you. Now, I do want to be very clear with that, okay? Prefer a lying neighbor over a murdering neighbor. Isn't it interesting that David does not reflect upon what you and I would perceive to be the greater of the offense, murder. What is Doeg's ultimate problem? Let me ask it in this way. What is our ultimate problem apart from Christ. My problem and your problem is the same problem that Doeg has apart from Christ. We have an evil, wicked heart that continually deceives us and others. And it manifests itself primarily in our speech. Friends, we are never more like the greatest evil than when we have a tongue that is lying and deceptive and full of hatred toward God and others. And if there is a place in all of the world where a lying tongue should not exist, it should be among the people of God. Doeg's problem is my problem and your problem apart from Christ. We love evil more than good. We love all words that devour. We have deceitful tongues. 
But as we live our lives in a deceitful world, as believers, as we live our lives among people who have such a disdain for anything that has to do with righteousness, Notice what David reminds us of here in verses 5, 6, and 7. We can always take confidence in God. Verse 5, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you in the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Here the way Isaiah wrote it in Isaiah 54 verse 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication for me, declares God. Do you hear what David is saying, friend? We can take utmost hope and trust in the Lord no matter what earthly evil is perpetrated against our lives. We are going to have evil done against us. We are going to have people who do us wrong. But notice David. Hear Isaiah. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, God says. Oh, friend, the evil person, being, nation, might gain a victory from time to time. And I would submit to you that Doeg gained a victory. He killed the entire community of Nob. And from everything we can see, he even boasted about his evil. But does Doeg ultimately prevail? Is Doeg ultimately a warrior? Is he ultimately one who prevails in might and power? The answer is no. We might lose (coughs) a battle from time to time. But friends, take hope and trust and confidence in knowing that God's final judgment is indeed coming, and that judgment will be right, and that judgment will be just. God ultimately is the one who defends us. He's ultimately the one in whom we can cast our care knowing that He cares for us. He is the one in Matthew chapter 11 that we read earlier that we can come to, that we can find refuge in, knowing that he will one day rightly rain down judgment against those who have perpetrated evil against God and God's people. Listen how he defines it, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. Doeg found some type of refuge in his, in his tent, if you will. Doeg found some type of refuge in his, in his house. Doeg found some type of refuge in his, in his might and the protection of, of King Saul. But notice, God is saying, none of those things, Doeg, are going to save you at the end of the day. None of those things. <coughs> none of your earthly possessions, friends. None of those things that you're finding confidence in now, not your job, not your wealth, not your 401k, not your home, not your fancy car, not your fancy clothes, none of those things will provide you a measure of protection from God's coming wrath for your rebellion and rejection of the person of Jesus Christ. 
And how do the godly respond? Look at verse 6. The righteous see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in what? His own destruction. Say, Pastor, is it right for me to to laugh at the destruction of the enemies of God? Perhaps. I'm going to address that at the close of, of this sermon. But what does the text mean here when it says, shall laugh at him, saying? This is an expression of ultimate confidence. What what the psalmist is saying, what David is saying is, you and I can have utter confidence in knowing that God will will indeed be the one who gets the last say. We can rest and take confidence in knowing that while the evil person might indeed win today, he or she will not win for eternity. David is reminding us, friends, to not play the card of the victim. For in some ways, every one of us seated in this room today can play the victim card. In some way, every one of us have been wronged in some measurable way. David is reminding us to play the victor card. The victor card, friends, because in Christ we shall overcome. Whatever evil has been perpetrated against you, whatever evil act, and some of you have had extreme evil acts perpetrated against you, you've been violated in some of the most horrendous ways. But notice what David says, that is not what defines us. That is not what characterizes us as the people of God. What characterizes us as the people of God is our utter hope and trust in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, in your pain and in your hurt, have confidence, trust, Believe, hope in Christ, knowing He will indeed rightly execute judgment. But notice how David closes this psalm in verses 8 and 9. He reminds us that believers should have hope when? Today. Believers should have hope now, at this, at this very moment, right now, at this very second. Believers should have confidence now and rejoice now under attack that God is indeed faithful. Look how he says it. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. You remember back to Psalm 1? Psalm 1 depicts for us these two images of two different types of people. The one who is the blessed man who trusts in the Lord and and the wicked. What is the blessed man? Listen to Psalm 1 verse 3. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water. And that streams of water, it yields its fruit and its season and its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. The next verse 
but the wicked are not so. David is reminding us of exactly who we are in Christ even when we are facing earthly evils that are perpetrated against our lives. See, friend, when we trust in God, when we rightly respond to the wickedness around us, when we rightly respond to God and faith and trust, David says here in this Psalm 52, we are like an olive tree. Olive trees are known for living for a really long time. They can live for several hundred years. Uh, a few years ago, we were in, in, in Israel, and one of my favorite things is to listen to tour guides in Israel because three quarters of the time, they're just making stuff up, and all the Americans are like, oh yeah, that's, that's really cool. And we're standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and this little man has given his spill to this group of tourists, and they're all looking you know, with, with such excitement, and he's telling the tourists, this is the olive tree that Jesus touched. And everybody's like, ah, let me touch the olive tree that Jesus touched. Well, friends, olive trees live a long time. But that's not the olive tree Jesus touched. But it's interesting that David is using this imagery of an olive tree. Olive trees have a sense of longevity, but not only do they have a sense of longevity, an olive tree is a tree that produces for a long time. It produces sustenance. It produces wealth. It produces and provides for the people who are going to live off of it. And notice what David says. When we rightly trust in God, we are like that olive tree. We're strong. We produce We're faithful. We have the confidence of God. Verse 8, I trust in this steadfast love of God. For how long? Forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of God of the godly. Notice what David culminates with here. Right hope and confidence in God always leads to right worship of God. When we hope rightly in God, when we trust rightly in God, when we place our confidence in the right place, That type of hope and faith, friends, will sustain you and me as we continually, daily, forever worship God. But the reverse is also true. Don't expect to rightly worship God when you're not rightly hoping in God. This text is a strong plea for you and me to forever trust in the steadfast love of God, knowing that God will one day execute final eschatological judgment. I want you to see that scene with me and Revelation chapter 19 as we close this morning. How will the people of God respond to God's judgment of the wicked? How can you and I even today rightly respond to God's judgment of the wicked? Revelation 19 gives for us this depiction Listen at this text with four hallelujahs responds to God's judgment 
of the wicked. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty uh, peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. What is the ultimate right response of God's people for God's judgment against the wicked? That response is one of eternal praise. Why? Because God and His judgments are always true and right and just. And friend, we can have confidence that no matter what earthly evils are carried out against us today, God will have the final say. Would you hope in that God today? Would you trust in that God today? Would you believe in that God today? Would you have confidence in that God today? Would you rest in that God today? Would you come to that God today? For nothing. Nothing. Nothing can ever pluck, remove you or me from the safe hand of an ever-loving, good, righteous, just, judging God. Would you pray with me? God, this morning as your people... We rejoice in your steadfast love. We rejoice that we can have confidence and hope and and faith in you, God, knowing that you will always provide, be true to your word for your people. So God, as we reflect this morning upon our lives, upon our situations, I pray, God, today that through your word and by your spirit, you might strengthen our faith and hope and trust in you. Friends, would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and respond and reflect upon the preaching of God's word? If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, you've never repented of your sins, you've never called on the name of the Lord, you never believed in your heart, that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Would you hear the words of this text of Scripture and the confidence of judgment coming? Would you repent of your sins and trust in Christ? The Bible says, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Today your life can be radically transformed by the by the gospel, by Christ, if you would repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. 
Would you know that judgment is indeed coming? It will take place. And your rebellion against God will earn you the wrath of God for all of eternity. For those of us who are believers, would you ask God to strengthen your confidence in Him? Perhaps today you are going through a very difficult situation in life. Great wrong has been perpetrated against you. Would you ask God to increase your faith in Him? Would you ask God to increase your hope in Him, knowing that while that evil might not be rectified on this side of eternity, that God will right all wrongs? Would you turn your focus away from the difficulty of the situation and would you turn to Christ and in Him rest secure? For those of you who are trusting in God well and not at this moment experiencing any difficulty, would you ask God by His Spirit to purpose in your heart now for when that day does come that you will indeed stand strong, that you will indeed be faithful. In just a few moments, friends, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. If you're here today and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, as we sing, myself and Pastor Travis will be here standing down front. It would be completely fine for you to come forward and to talk with one of us. We'd be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come talk to one of us. There are plenty of people seated around you, and anyone seated around you would be delighted to share with you how you can trust in Christ. You can also see one of us at the, at the end of the service. Secondly, maybe you'd like for one of us just to pray with you. That your faith might be indeed strengthened. That your confidence in Christ might grow. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God is impressed upon your heart that this is a church in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. God, as we respond to you now, we ask that our responses might be pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.